We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. The word of the Lord. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. C.S. Lewis wrote in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Waterstone Community Church. We are far too easily pleased. Let's pray. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit right now to come in and through every heart, reveal to us those areas where our desires for you are too weak. Show us those areas of our life where our desires are too strong for those God substitutes for those good things that we make into ultimate things. Just kind of come and Spirit, reorder our lives. I guess my prayer has been for this time that You would increase our desire for You, God. 
here at Waterstone right now, in this moment, increase our desire for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We Protestants have not done away with the confessional booth. We've just moved it into restaurants. I could take you around a driving tour of Denver and I could point to you, there's the IHOP where he told me he was stealing from work. And there's the Starbucks where she confessed the affair. And there's the Chili's where he came clean about his addiction. After 30 years in the confessional booth, I have a proverb for you. Bored people make bad decisions. <laughs> Are you bored? I, you know, I'm not talking about the message. We've just started for crying out loud. <laughs> Come on. In life, in life, your desires too weak. Uh, are you bored? I, I, Vivi put together a slide of this, uh, the uh, synonyms for boredom. Any of those connect with you? Are you? <sighs> oh, how about Vivi put together the antonyms for boredom? How about these? Which sets of words tend to come up in conversations about you? Which sets of words, if you were brutally honest and sure that God was listening, would you use to describe your life right now? As we just sang, when your family puts you into the ground, which words? will they use to describe your life? Are you bored? How about this? Are we bored? I think churches get bored. When I think about it, I always remember this quote from one of the best novels that I've read, The Diary of a Country Priest by Jorge Bernanos, 1937. Listen to how he describes boredom in a church. It begins with, with this paragraph. My parish is bored stiff. <laughs> Sorry. No other word for it, like so many others. We can see them being eaten up by boredom, and we can't do anything about it. The world is eaten up by boredom. To perceive this needs a little preliminary thought. You can't see it all at once. It's like dust. You go about and never notice. You breathe it in. You eat it and drink it. It is sifted so fine it doesn't even grit on your teeth. But stand still for an instant and there it is, coating your face and hands to shake off this drizzle of ashes. You must be forever on the go. And so people are always on the go. Perhaps... The answer would be that the world has long been familiar with boredom, that such is the true condition of man. No doubt the seed was scattered all over life and here and there found fertile soil to take root. But I wonder if man has ever before experienced this contagion, this leprosy of boredom. 
an aborted despair, a shameful form of despair in some way like the fermentation of a Christianity in decay. I think Bernanos is there putting before us a kind of boredom quotient that the boredom level in a church is directly proportional to the presence of God. How much God do we want? Can I just totally put my cards on the table with you this morning? I think the greatest challenge at Waterstone right now is that we have enough of God. Some of us come, we want our teaspoon. Others of us come, we want our tablespoon. Some of us come, we prepare Saturday night, we're going to get our pint and our quart. Some of us, two hours on a Sunday morning, it's, all we, it's good, it's all we need. Some of us, maybe one other meeting during the week, it's good, it's all we, we need. The greatest problem of Waterstone is the problem of God. We don't know what to do with Him. And we don't know how to live without Him. Welcome to 1 Corinthians. We are here to pump you up. A broken kind of beautiful. The thesis of 1 Corinthians is that the church is the most beautiful place on the planet because God has, in Christ, died for this church, called it out, equipped it to be the windows of heaven for the world to see. But at the same time, the church can be one of the most disappointing and hurtful experiences you will ever have in your life. The fleas come with the dog. There was a lot of boredom going on in Corinth church as evidenced by the worship wars, evidenced by the confessional booth sexual immorality, evidenced by the leadership cults that were going on, symptoms of boredom one and all. This morning, what I'd like to do with you as we look at this amazing text in chapter 2 is kind of take our sleeves and go up to the windows in Corinth and clean off a little circle and look in to see why Paul is asserting that yes, the church is beautiful and broken and there's boredom, but if you hold on to these three things, you will boredom-proof your church. And what are those three things? The first thing is that we have a message of wisdom for the mature. And the second thing is that we see this message of wisdom revealed by the Holy Spirit. And the third thing is that we have this message and this, this uh, spirit that produce in verse 16, the mind of Christ. Let me say that again, and here's where you're going. You'll be able to navigate with me. What makes a church unboring is that we have this amazing message, the wisdom of God, and this message is being revealed by the Spirit for everyone to understand. And that Message plus the Spirit produces in all Christians the most beautiful mind in the world, the mind of Christ in us. Let's start talking about this message 
of wisdom. Paul says it's a message of the wisdom of God given to the mature. He chooses that word mature because it's one of the favorite words of the Corinthian church. They loved that word and they applied it to themselves. Namely, they thought they were mature. And Paul and his message was immature. (laughs) And so Paul decides to redefine the category. And he says, here's what mature means. It's literally in the Greek, it's a word that means, it's teleos. It means having a, a, a completion or a wholeness or we might say repurposed. We might say Paul's going to now define what a true Christian is. So he says, here's what a true Christian is. They have received the message of the wisdom of God. So understanding that Paul's now talking to all Christians who cherish Christ and grasp onto the cross as the wisdom of God, he says then, here's the message. Here's what true Christians believe. And for understanding what the message is, we go back into chapter 1. And by the way, if you were here three weeks ago, the last time we were in 1 Corinthians, David Bass preached one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard at Waterstone. And it would be worth your time to either listen to it or go back and listen to it. It's an amazing message, but what Paul does, and David unpacked it, was define the wisdom of God. And in two words, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. Christ crucified is the message. The message, that's the wisdom of God. So, understanding that message, we always have to go back. The wisdom of God means that historical event 2,000 years ago when God in flesh suffered in the sinner's place for our sins to save us and forgive us. In order to deal with God and know God, we always have to deal with the cross. The cross is the wisdom of God. It's how He's choosing to save the world. It's at the cross when we understand that sinners, guilty sinners, are forgiven. It's at the cross when we understand there's an exchange, the condemned become righteous in God's eyes. It's at the cross we understand that the powers of sin and death are conquered. It's at the cross we understand the promise of hope for a new heavens and a new earth. Then all things restored. But also now that power of the cross enables us to forgive our most bitter enemy before we go to heaven. We can do it now. That is the power of the cross. That's the wisdom of God. The message that every true Christian receives. But you and I both know that that's a difficult message. Christ crucified. If I could say it this way, it's like fried ice. We like the fried. Jesus is king. Yeah, king! But a king that dies the death of a terrorist on a cross? That's ice. I don't know that I could go there. It's a difficult message for the world. And in those verses, 7 through 9, we see Paul you know, talking about these, these contrasts that for the world, I mean, they saw Jesus. They didn't see Him as the Lord of glory. They killed Him. And Paul says, you know, the wisdom of this world and the rulers of this age, they're, they're passing. We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. 
None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul's point is that this is a difficult message for the wisdom of the world to understand. Right? I mean, think about this. I've never heard a feature on the cross on Jimmy Fallon. I've never heard the theological implications of the cross discussed on The View. I've never heard Oprah try to apply the wisdom of the cross to our daily lives. I mean, the world sees this message of a fried ice king crucified, and and their response is, let's get serious here. I mean, the man was born behind the hotel, grew up on the back 40 in the middle of nowhere, never once touched foot on the marbled halls of Rome. His whole ministry was lasted uh, no longer than Occupy Wall Street. And then he dies in the place of a terrorist? Come on! That's the message that's going to change the world? I'm not seeing it. But Paul says to the Christian, to the ones who see it, it's a mystery. A mystery, the Greek word mysterion, it's the idea that it's an open secret. It's like happening right in front of you, but you can't see it unless God shows it to you. It's hidden. It's, it's there. It's It's present, but you can't really see it even though it's right next to you until the Spirit of God comes and takes the blindfold off. And then he says it's it's destined. The cross wasn't plan B. Sinners killed Jesus, exercising their free will, but it was part of God's plan on every page of the Old Testament. That quote we began with, no mind has seen uh, no, no eye has seen, no ears have heard. That was from Isaiah 64, 700 years earlier. The cross was what was being prepared. It's mystery. It's God's plan. It's destiny. But the world doesn't see it, even though the beauty is right in front of them. And understand, I mean, the world, this was the highest form of government. It was Herod and Pilate that put Jesus to death. Uh, Our government's based on the Roman government. This was the highest form of human wisdom and they didn't see it. And Paul and Caiaphas and others, Paul would not have seen it. And he was a Pharisee. He had the Old Testament memorized. Memorized! And he didn't see it until the Spirit of Christ and Jesus appeared to him and showed him, took the blindfold off. The most developed religious system, the Jews didn't see it. But it's a secret of beauty right in front. I thought to illustrate, it'd be great to share this this YouTube video that we came across. The beauty right in front of us, but not able to see it. Joshua Bell emerged from the subway train and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. He was nondescript, A young man in jeans, long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the case at his feet, he threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money. And he began to play. For the next 45 minutes, in the D.C. metro station, Bell played Mozart and Schubert, as more than a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. If they had, they might have recognized Bell as a world-renowned violinist. They might have noted 
that his instrument was a rare Stradivarius worth more than $3 million. It was part of a project by the Washington Post that the editors called, quote, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste in a banal setting at an inconvenient time would beauty transcend. End of quote. Only three days earlier, Bell had sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary cheapest seats going for $100. In the subway, Joshua Bell collected about $32 from 27 donations who stopped long enough to drop one in. The message of the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, an open secret right in front of us, but we do not see it. I want to talk about then the second, the Holy Spirit, and how He reveals the message to us. But before then, two quick points of application. Paul is clear in those verses 7-9 through that the wisdom of the world comes to nothing, he says. The wisdom of the world is incapable of salvation, of freedom from death. Now, I'm guessing, like me, there's some boomers in the house this morning, otherwise known as old people, uh, who remember one of the great magazines, no longer in print, but it was called Life Magazine. So, remember our boomers in the house? Probably some of us have saved one of the covers of Life Magazine for our personal memento collection. I've saved one. It was from 1988. I still have it in my office. There's the cover, The Meaning of Life. I go back and read it at least once a year. What's interesting to me is two things. How relevant it still is. People wrestling. They were all asked, why are we here? The other thing that is maybe not so interesting is that all the people they interviewed are beginning to die. So I wanted to share two dead people with you this morning. Why are we here? The first one from Leonard Nimoy, as he answered. I find the question, why are we here, typically human. I suggest, are we here? That would be the more logical choice. Thank you, Spock. Yeah, big help. Thank you. Are we here? How about this one, though, from the late poet, Charles Bukowski, Chuck. Why are we here? Barkowski writes. For those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command or a faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and our li- live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. 
Here's the thing. I, with Bukowski, have now lived long enough that I've performed over 250 funerals. And not once have I ever seen death tremble to take anyone. What I have seen is people clinging onto the one who by his own power walked out of his grave and make death tremble. What I have seen is that one who on the moment he was crucified, graves in Jerusalem started to pop open. And it was like God trying to put his hands over them saying, not yet, not yet. I've seen people holding on to him. The wisdom of the world cannot save us from death. What you have to decide is if the one who walked out of his own grave can save you from death. Second thing, the wisdom of God is permanently peculiar. Have you noticed that in our American culture, the gospel is becoming less normal? The gospel is being held by the public, by the culture, as much and more implausible. I could never believe that. You, you may have seen it. It made the evening news on all the channels. The Pew Research latest study that the number of professing Christians now in America is 7 out of 10 professing Christians. And that the number of atheists in our culture, at least you will confess that they're atheists, has risen 6%. And there are many around us saying, oh, you know, what are we going to do? And yeah, you know, who's thrilled about that? But may I remind you that when the gospel was first preached, it was a foolish and freakish and strange message. May I remind you that when the gospel was first planted in this world, it didn't start in Mayberry, M.D. It started on the wrong side of Rome. And they tried to kill it, stop it, squash it. But 300 years later, as Frank Tillipas said the other way, Constantine said, well, if you can't beat him, join him. You want to know what I really think? I think God is tilling the soil again for the gospel to take further and deeper root in the culture of the West. And what that means is that we are going to continue to look less like Mayberry here in America and more like Rome. And I say, bring it on! It's about time Christians have to experience consequence and cost for believing in this freakish, foolish message of a king crucified. Bring it on. Who wants to live in Mayberry, anyhow?
Jesus said in Matthew 16, you know, he was dialoguing with Peter. Peter had just made this great confession. Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am? And, you know, some said Elijah, some said you know, Moses, whatever. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. First thing Jesus said, you'll recall, was, now, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God had to reveal that to you, Peter. But then, Jesus said, on that confession, Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. So I'm asking you, Waterstone, we Americans here, in the sunset of a great civilization, are the gates of hell getting taller and stronger? No. God's just preparing the soil to plant the confession in again. And the church cannot be stopped because we have the words of life and the message of the gospel. A peculiarly permanent message. That's the message of God. Christ crucified the cross. Cherish Christ, grasp onto the cross. But how does anyone ever see it? How is it revealed to them? Verses 10 through 14. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them literally moronic, empty, narrow, and, the, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Paul takes us now into our understanding of the Holy Spirit. So we have this message, Christ crucified. How in the world will we ever see it or understand it? Paul says you'll see it and understand it because when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God opens your eyes to, to, to see that message. It's the twofold work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. The first is to display the cross to the world. And it happened in a historical event 2,000 years ago, but the Spirit put together a book of eyewitness testimony. He bound it and He's kept it for 2,000 years. And by the way, you know this, right? If the Bible was ever counted on the New York Times bestseller list each week, it would be a rare week when any other book gets a look at the number one spot. So they just took it out. It's that open secret. The Bible, week after week, objectively, publicly saying to the world, here's the cross. Here's salvation. Here's the wisdom of God. I've given it to you. It's the Bible. But until the Spirit... That's revelation. That's the, ministry, the Spirit's work of revelation revealing the cross to the world. But until that second work of the Spirit comes, illumination until the blindfold personally and individually is taken off. We won't see it until the Spirit opens our eyes. So, can I get a volunteer up here? Maybe a young, young kid? Freddie. Freddie, thanks for volunteering. Come on up, Freddie. 
First of all, football player, Chaffield, right? Yeah, so first thing I want you to see before we blindfold you is the best football team in the country is Penn State. State. All right, get that cleared up. Freddie, can I blind, would you get down on your knees because you're tall? I'm going to blindfold you. I won't, I won't hurt you. You're bigger than I am. Okay, stand up. Can you see? All right. Take, take this way. Take 10 steps forward. No. <laughs> All right. Stay right there, Freddie. All right. First work of the Holy Spirit shows the world the foolishness of God, the message of Christ crucified, but the only way to be saved. And day in, 24-7, day in, day out, he's saying to the world, look at the masterpiece. This is the masterpiece revealed to the world. We decided to go with Van Gogh. Masterpiece. So it's revealed. It's an open secret. It's there all the time. Jesus died on the cross for our sins to save us from the world. The masterpiece shown to the world day in, day out. But until the Spirit does His second work, comes to each of us individually, enters our lives, and then He takes the blindfold off. Then we can turn around see the masterpiece. See it for what it is and what it means. And choose to make that the way we view all of life. Thanks, Fred. Would you give Freddie a hand? Chatfield Charger? That is the twofold work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts it out there and says that until the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we won't understand the things of God. They will seem like foolishness to us. But we can receive the Holy Spirit. So, application. Here's what I want us to to, to always remember. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer is not just more information. Right? Now, we all get the same information. The masterpiece. Christ crucified. We all get the information. But the difference is not just more information until they finally read enough and study enough and then they see it. No. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer is the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the relational link that takes the information into our hearts and connects us to the Father. And then we, aha, we see it. It's important to keep in mind as you interact with the unbelievers that you love and are called to serve. You know, sometimes it's okay thing to say, read this book or You know, here's the latest from Josh McDowell or, you know, we like that sort of thing. Be careful. I mean, it's it's good to share the evidence. It's good for information. We all want and need information. But the ultimate closure of the deal is not you handing them book after book after book. The closer is the Holy Spirit. So you need, here's where it gets, and we'll get to this in a moment, but You need to be the book, right? You need to be the one that keeps them interested. Again, I'm not saying don't give books. I mean, we give books at every event we do. We're we're kind of a cognitive church. We live in our heads a lot. We like that stuff. But that's usually not what closes the deal or keeps the person interested. What keeps the person interested is you. And you are the book. You're the window. And them watching you, and, and there's something different about you. It seems like, can I say it? It seems like you have God in your life, in you. And you do. 
So the difference is not just more information. It is the living spirit of God who lives in you. Can I say one other thing? In our culture, we often hear that, you know, this person's a spiritual person because they read L. Ron Hubbard or this person's a spiritual person because they watch Oprah. This person's a spiritual person because they love metaphysics. Whatever. Do you know what Paul, the Bible says, is a spiritual person? Bottom line. A spiritual person is a person who has the Spirit of God living in them. That's a spiritual person. It's the Spirit that connects us by taking the blindfold off, helping us to see the masterpiece, Christ on the cross. And then, Paul says, finishes it. So the message plus the Spirit produces, in verse 16, the, the mind of Christ. We have verses 15 and 16. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. In other words, what motivates us is not the applause of the world. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? Answer, Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. Paul's saying in these verses, we with the Spirit in our lives can make judgments in every situation of our life as to how to apply the cross. Whatever we encounter in the world, whatever problem we hear about, whether it's in Africa or whether it's across the street in our community, we, with the Spirit in us, have the wisdom of God so that we know how to apply the cross and respond like Christ to these and every situation. And that is the beautiful mind of Christ. You may have seen it a couple weeks ago. There was a controversial article in the New York Times written by a Nicholas Kristof, who's, who's not a Christian and no friend of Christianity. But it was called A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. Kristof was traveling in Angola, Africa. And Angola is the number one rated country for child mortality rate. Kids dying everywhere. And he was doing a piece on it. He was down there and he ran into a doctor, a medical doctor named Stephen Foster, who happened to be a Christian. The article's worth your time just to read about the Foster family. I mean, they have encountered everything you could ever imagine by living 37 years in Africa. Snake bites, literally waking up from their beds with snakes on the floor. Um, they, they have encountered soldiers coming in with AK-47s to kidnap the nurses. And Dr. Foster standing in between. The kids tell their stories about the sicknesses and malaria that they live with, but they wouldn't change an hour of it. Uh, it talks about being so shorthanded on equipment at times. One time he was doing a surgery and he had to pull the windshield washer fluid hose from his car to stick in for drainage from a surgery wound. Dr. Foster is simply, and he says this in our article, a Christian who's trying to be a window for God. Certainly this is not the calling of every Christian, and Dr. Foster would not be where he is without the people back home supporting him and engaging in his ministry and praying for him. But this is what I want us to see. Every one of us is called to be a window so that when people look into Waterstone through you, they see the beautiful mind of Christ. Look how Christoph finishes. Most evangelicals are not, of course, following such a harrowing path. Thank the Lord, right? Um, And it's also true that there are plenty of secular doctors doing heroic work for Doctors Without Borders and Partners in Health. But, (laughs) window. I must say 
that a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible has evacuated, have been evangelicals. That's us. Nuns or priests. You have the message. Christ crucified, the cross, salvation, revealed by the Spirit, which gives us the beautiful mind of Christ such that we spend most of our days thinking about how we are going to apply the cross of Christ to every situation we encountered. And the power of the message plus the Spirit, the beautiful mind of Christ, is literally what will change our world. That's when you see cleaning the windows, looking in Corinth, looking in Waterstone, We remember that every day of our lives, people are looking at us. We are the window to the beautiful mind of Christ. And when that happens, let me just leave you with my last quote. It's from Clarence Jordan. It is difficult to be indifferent to a wide awake Christian. A real live person of God. It is even more difficult to be indifferent to a whole body of Christians like this. You can hate them or you can love them. But one thing is certain, you can't ignore them. There is something about them that won't let you go. It isn't so much what they say or what they do. Things that seems to haunt you is what they are. (laughs) Haunt you. You can't put them out of your mind any more than you can shake off your shadow. They confront you with an entirely different way of life, a new way of thinking, a changed set of values, a higher standard of living. In short, they face you with the kingdom of God. There's no washing of hands. These people must be crowned or crucified, for they are either mighty right or mighty wrong. But did you hear it? Mighty! So I guess what I'm really asking you, Waterstone, windows of God, how much of Him do you want? How much of Him will you show? Wide awake Christians. That's who we are.